Thank you, Teresa. Again, good morning, everybody. Let me see if I can do this without the crutch falling over. Being a giant distraction. So, you know, it was a little over a year ago that uh, during the midst of COVID that we rescued a dog. And, and you know, we'd been two years without a dog in our house, and it was like, we're not getting another dog. And lo and behold, we go and rescue a, a, a dog, and not only did we stop there, but we got a puppy and two, so we got two. Um, and, and so we actually found this, this rescue agency out of Oswego called Just Giants. And maybe you can understand that Just Giants, they, they rescue Just Giant dogs. And so we've always been a fan of English Mastiffs, and so we rescued a four-year-old English Mastiff who was a stray and just really in bad shape and was on a medical hold. And we happened to be going to Texas because this dog was in Fort Worth. And we happened to be going to Texas because uh, our son's daughter, our first child, was being born. And so we were going down there, and it was just perfect timing. And so we stopped by Fort Worth on our way to south of Austin to see the dog and meet the dog. And, like, just a gorgeous dog and just sweet as could be. She wasn't a real fan of me at that point, but, you know, it's like everything I wear on you. Uh, I, 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 um, I, I took her and, and took Terry. We went on to Austin, and I turned around and went back came back home. And on the way back, we picked up the dog. But, you know, it wasn't just that simple. You know, if you've ever rescued a dog or adopted a dog, you know there's this whole contract you have to fill out. And they have to, they do background checks and they actually call the people to find out if you're upstanding people. And then they did, you know, during the pandemic, they would usually come out and inspect your home. But because it was the pandemic, they, they requested a FaceTime. So like FaceTime, I'm walking around the house and this is the backyard. It's fenced. It's just like I said it was. And you know, they saw us, and we looked okay, and, and then that, so when, then we paid to pick up the dog. It wasn't just like we paid money, got the dog. It was like, no, 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 you, there are all these things that you must do and you say you will do taking care of this dog because they valued this, this life and, and just a sweet dog on top of it. But, you know, we said if anything happened that they would go back to the agency. We couldn't just give the dog away. And, and so they were convinced because we are. We're good dog owners, and I... I pride myself of being, you know, a good dog owner. And, um, and so on, we came back to Lyle, and so her and I bonded over a week, and, and then back to Texas. In the middle of the night, on a Friday night, I'm driving through Missouri, and I stop at a gas station to let her out so she could go to the bathroom and, and everything. And so um, I've got a ramp that I put at the back of the Suburban. I'm at the back of the Suburban. I backed into a grassy area. I opened the back of the Suburban, and as I'm going to, like, grab her, Boom, out the back of the suburban she goes. And she's like, and I'm like, come here, Daisy, come here, Daisy. And Daisy's like, woo, free at last. And she's bouncing around and goes running across the highway. Yeah, right? And I'm just like, I've had this dog less than a week, and I'm the dog expert, and I'm never going to live this down. And these people are going to be like, like, and all I had visions of is this dog just running away because I couldn't catch her. And across the road, she went 15 minutes. It's raining, and I'm on the ground calling her, and she's running to me and running away. It's like a big game. And finally, I get her back, you know, and it's like you can't scold them, right? You can't, it's like, you know, good girl, good girl. And I'm on the inside going, and I put her in the back of the van and then, or the back of the Suburban, and down to Texas we go. And, And I don't know if that's ever happened to you because it was like, I was, I was given the responsibility to take care of this dog. And I said I could do it, and, and I believed I could. But and now all of a sudden it's like, really? Less than a week, and, and you've lost this dog? 
I didn't know how to explain it to the kids or to my wife or let alone to this agency. And it's like, what do you do? I mean, does that happen to any of you guys? Have you ever had that kind of responsibility? Or am I like the only one here this morning? Well, I, I know I'm, oh, thank you, TJ, thank you. So, you know, I know I'm not alone, not just sitting in the room, but in history, because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in scripture, right? I mean, you, you know, right, if you guys know your, your scripture, and, and maybe those you don't, I think it's a fascinating story. You know, it's like 3,300 years ago, God gives the law, you know, those first five books of your, of your Bible in the Old Testament to the, to the children of Israel. And it's theirs. They're, to, they're to, to obey it. They're to keep it, not just keep it by obeying it, but actually hold it dear. It's the most precious thing God has given them. It's his word. It's his law for them, right? And they did a great job of holding on to it for a while. And, and then they lost it. Can you imagine? They lose God's word. You could imagine, like, you think you were in trouble when you lost your dad's, you know, whatever, right? But, I mean, now you've lost God's word. And, and, and the funny thing about it is, is the funny place where they lost it, right? They lost it in the temple. Like, you lost it in the temple? How can you lose it in the temple? But that's what happened. See, what happened was about, oh, gosh. So what was it, about 700 years later or so, that King Josiah, he's an eight-year-old that becomes king in Judah, and, but see, he was preceded by 57 years of evil rule. By his grandfather and his father, they did what was detestable in God's sight. And so they paid no attention to the law, so they didn't need it. And so somehow the scrolls got tucked away somewhere in the temple, and nobody read them. Nobody followed them. And Josiah, as a young boy, probably never heard it. Until one day, when he's about age 26, and, and he sends a delegation into the temple to clean out the temple because he's like, this isn't right, that there are all these foreign idols and, and these poles and all this. It was detestable what was going on in the temple, and he wanted it cleaned out. Well, one of the, one of the leaders, one day, like, they're in cleaning out, and they, they come across a scroll. And it's like, what is this? And, and, and lo and behold, it's the law that was given to Moses. It's the scroll that was written down. And and so they go to the king, and they go to King Josiah and said, you're never going to guess what we found. We found the book of the law. And he's like, oh, really? What does it say? Read it to me. And so they read him the book of the law, and when he heard it, he was just like afraid. Like, we lost God's word? It's like, we're, we're done for. And, and yet God has mercy on them, and God has grace on them. And, and for losing God's law, but they found it. And so he spent the rest of his life bringing the children of Israel back into line with God's teaching. But then again, you know, he's followed up by bad kings, and that's just how it went for Israel. But then that's not the end, right? So fast forward about 2,100 years from then to a time in the 16th century A.D., and there's a group of reformers led by Martin Luther and Zwingli and, and Cal, John Calvin they, they, they rediscover something that they hadn't lost the Bible, okay? They still had the Bible, but there was a central ancient teaching in the Bible that the church had lost. It, it wasn't that this was a new teaching. It was something that they had discovered that had been there all along that they didn't see, but yet God revealed it to them, and, and it's this ancient doctrine that is like you are justified by grace is, is the ancient doctrine. that It was right there all along. It wasn't hidden. They just didn't read it or didn't understand it or warped it or whatever. And, and it's really summarized by Paul in, in his book to the Ephesians in, in chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, 
you know, you are saved by grace. That's why you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, not by works. It's a gift from God so that none of you would boast. And that doctrine was rediscovered and it reinvigorated the church. And so these reformers spent the rest of their lives and this doctrine was central to the Protestant faith. And, and, and today, people still believe that to be true. But here, here's what's happened. It, it's sort of lost its like, power. It's lost its like, power in, in the church. It, it, it's central, but it really has kind of lost its luster, I think, as, as far as how we actually live by it. Because now, like, fast forward another 500 years from, from then and, and, and to a time now where I think there's another ancient doctrine that some recent scholars and, and, and reformers, I would say, like Timothy Keller and, and Brian Stevenson, just to name a few, are trying to bring forward an ancient biblical doctrine that I think has been lost in the church. And that is the doctrine of biblical justice. I say it's been lost in the church because it's been absconded with and, and we sort of resist it because we see a cry for justice in our culture, but yet that cry is an ancient cry from Scripture for God's people to exercise justice. And last week, Pastor Dave shared with us what it is to do justice. And it's not that we don't understand that we should help the poor and that we should help the marginalized, the oppressed. We know these things. Right? It's not that we don't know these things. We know them. But what we lack is truly that, that dynamic power, that motivation to actually do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about like just like what we see this last week. I mean, the church has always been, especially I know Trinity's always been a church where if there's a disaster, if there's a need, people Trinity show up. Like Chainsaw Team, I mean, doing all, all the time. And, and you'll see that in the country. I saw that in hurricanes in New Orleans you'd see that the, the government agencies would be gone and the local church is still there, providing help and resources. What I'm talking about is the everyday justice in our world for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Because every day in our culture, there are people living on nothing and, and living and in, in, in just barely getting by and, and, and trying to make ends meet. And, and, and there's just no way to get out of it without help. And, and God sees that, and he calls his church to bring justice into those situations every day. But we, I think, have lost the motivation to actually carry that out on a consistent, continual basis, especially when you look at this definition from last week, right, where Bruce Waltke says, to truly do justice in the world, the righteous of God disadvantage themselves to advantage others as opposed to advantaging ourselves to, to disadvantage the culture around us. No, we're called to disadvantage ourselves, to actually do more for other people and expect less in return. Where does the motivation for that come from? The true motivation that, we, that provides us the opportunity to actually continually to do that. Well, former Yale law professor looks at this issue, and this is what he said. Arthur Leff says, looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why any, any, any of us should or anything should. See, he's saying it's not that we don't know. 
but we lack the motivation. You know, it's like, so what we've seen in our culture and what we've seen in the church is, you know, like, well, it's, it, we should love one another. Do it for their sake. Do it for everybody else's sake. We should love them, right? Or, or better yet, if we could just get behind this idea of love and, and care for one, what a better world this would be. So let's all get behind that idea, which is a good idea. But does motivation long-term really, like, exist there? I would say it doesn't. Or, or maybe we try and guilt people in or, or make them afraid that if we don't do this, something horrible is going to happen. And, and, and we try to motivate people that way. And I would argue, as he's noticed, that that might work for a while. But long term, it, it, it just peters out and it doesn't keep us motivated. It's not that thing that motivates us from the inside. Those are all external motivations that can, can, can shape us for a while. But really, out of our hearts is where that motivation needs to come from if it's going to actually disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. I, I think there needs to be something bigger and, and more powerful than that. And I would argue this morning that it comes from this ancient doctrine that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. This ancient doctrine that we see in God's law, right? God gives a law to, to the children of Israel and, and he never for once, okay, never once did he ever expect them to keep the law perfectly. <laughs> I mean, he knew them, right? He created them. He knew they couldn't keep the law. So why did he give them the law? To, to show them their need for a savior. To, 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 to help them realize their dependency upon him to save them. If it's not for his grace, they know they can't keep the law. The law was a reminder of their sins. The law was there to remind them of their need for a savior and to show them the grace that God had. And we see that in the Reformation the grace that God has. It's this central teaching that you see that goes all the way back, pre-Moses, all the way back where God said he would rescue them. He would find a way to make people right with God again, that people would be justified by grace. Remember last, if you were here in, in January, we went through the armor of God and we talked about justification. And justification is that word that means declared righteous. And righteous is a relational word that means we're in a right relationship with God, right? To be righteous, you have to, it's a relational word, and you live up to both ends of the, of the relationship because we haven't lived up to our end. God has lived up to our end for us through the person of Jesus. And because of the work of Jesus, we have a right relationship with God, and therefore we are declared justified by God's grace through faith, not by our own works so that we don't boast in our own works. It's not because we're learned people or good people or well-intended people. No, it's because God is a gracious God. It is by his grace that we're saved. And it's that doctrine that if we truly wrestle with, understand, write it on our heads, write it around our wrists, do not forget that will serve to motivate us to do things that just seem absolutely ridiculous in the world around us. But it's the one thing that can actually do justice long-term in the world. And one thing that we, the church, are equipped to do because we have this doctrine. We have this grace. And so that's what we want to look at this morning is how can we better understand, hold on to this teaching and, and allow this teaching to actually motivate our hearts to change. So if you would pray with me as we begin in God's word. Father, we thank you for this day. Um, your word, your patience, your grace that you give us so freely. I ask this morning that the words of my mouth, the, the meditation of our hearts would be truly pleasing in your sight. 
our God, our Redeemer, our Rock, who is so gracious and so merciful. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace for us. I ask that you would mold us and shape us more into the image of your Son. For the sake of Jesus, we ask this. And in his, his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been focusing on this text in Micah, as I said earlier, in chapter 6, verse 8, where God has said, he's told you, he's, to, the, to the prophet Micah, God has told you, oh man, how it is, what it is that God requires of you, and that's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And right there in the middle of this text is that ancient doctrine of saved by grace. Do you see it? Probably not, <laughs> because I think it's a poor translation, as most of the English translations are, because we don't have context to understand. We've got an English translation of an ancient Hebrew text, and, and, and it's something that we can't see because we lack the context of these ancient Hebrews. Let me give you an example why context, again, is so key. Context is king when it comes to Scripture. Let me read this, let me read this paragraph to you and see if this helps you understand. A seashore is better placed than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, then you won't get another chance. That help? <laughs> it didn't me either when I first read it. But let me give you some context. I can do that by giving you a single word, okay? Kite. Now let me read it again. A seashore is better than a, than a better place than a street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags in it, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. You see how context helps you here? And I think that's the same thing when it comes to this text. Context is king. But the challenge is, is that we can't see it because we don't have context. And, and the context that we're to be given is this phrase here that's been translated, love kindness. And it's a poor translation because it's a hard Hebrew word that's being translated there. It's a word that is a lot of like, there's really no one word that gives you context here of what that word is in Hebrew language. And you'll see it translated in your Bibles a lot of different ways. You'll see it translated as love kindness, love mercy, love or do steadfast love, and, and there's all these different words that are trying to translate what is being, what's meant by this Hebrew word. And, and this Hebrew word is, is really that gives us the context for what's being said here. And let me help you understand. It's this Hebrew word that is, is chesed. I, I, I said it enough last service that I did it right the first time. You're supposed to like spit when you say it. And really this chesed word is, is, is something that we see over 250 times in the Old Testament. And, and it's, it's translated many different ways. It's translated as kindness, as loving kindness, as mercy, as to deal loyally, steadfast love, to devotion, to faithfulness. It's translated all those different ways because that word actually encompasses all of those things. But probably the closest translation I've seen, I think it's the NIRV that actually gets it well because it's an action. See, when we read it says love kindness. Like, well, who doesn't love kindness, right? Especially when it's done to you. 
I mean, like, duh, right? I mean, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense. I agree with that. But that's not what's being said. It's not just a feeling or a thought or an emotion. It's actually an action. Hesed is something that you do. In fact, you'll see it throughout the Old Testament preceded by to do, right? That you are to do chesed. And, and so that word in the Hebrew, when the, when the ancient Hebrews would have read that or heard that from Micah, that word right there would have just, just that would have been the central part of this teaching. It's like you're to do justice, but you're also to do chesed and to walk humbly with your God. And right here is the whole motivation for that Hebrew culture because they would have been reminded of what God does or what God has done because love, chesed, isn't something that you feel, isn't just something that you think, it's actually something that you do. Miroslav Volf, in his book titled Against the Tide, it's a, it's a compilation of essays that are just absolutely beautiful. And in, in, one, in one of the six sections of this book, this is what he says about love. He says, at its core, love is not a feeling at all, but an action, a way of being, in active care for others, for the integrity of their bodies and souls as well as their flourishing. It's not an emotion. It's an action. And that word chesed would have right away to those ancient Hebrews, just ears would have been perked, and they would have been reminded of God. The motivation is what God had done for them. Because often hesed is spoken of, spoken of God. But it's also something that God asks and requires of his children. And when you look at the uses of hesed in the Old Testament, I'm getting tired of saying that, in the Old Testament, you'll see it like in these four different ways. You get a better understanding when you see it, you'll, you'll see how it's, how it's Used And the, one of the first ways that it's used is it's the help of another is essential. Like, this, this other needs the help, right? This other person, right? It's required that this person, is, it's essential that they get this help, right? And the second way we see it used is that the help itself is essential. Not only is the person, right, in, in dire need of it, but the help that they need, if they don't get that, they're done for. Right? And the third way we see it used is that a person is uniquely able to help. So the person doing hesed is, is somebody uniquely equipped to actually bring hesed to the person that's needing it. So there, there's a uniqueness to the, to the help. And then finally, it's given freely. That it's not done by compulsion or something that I have to do or guilted to do. It's not like something that we all need to get behind. You know, no, it's like something that we give freely. That we disadvantage ourselves freely for the sake of other people. That is hesed in, in the Old Testament and that understanding about what God has done for them. That would have been the first thing they would have, would have seen. And it was because of this is what God has done for you. And, and we see that in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is what we read. He, he meaning God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, and that word sojourner there means foreigner. Today, think about refugee, all right? We see that all the time. God loves the refugee. He loves the fatherless and executes justice for them. And he loves the sojourner, giving them food, giving them food and clothing. It says, so love the sojourner, 
therefore, for you were sojourners in Egypt, right? Because of what God has done for you. Why should you love the sojourner? Because you were once sojourners. You were captives in, in Egypt. You couldn't free yourself. It required God to come and free you. Only he could provide that freedom. And he was the only one equipped to do it. You couldn't extricate yourself from Egypt. God had to come in, and he did so not because you're just great people, but because he loves you, and he cares for you, and he wants you to flourish. He wants you to be free. And so they would have been reminded because you see it over and over and over again in the scriptures that they should not forget, they should not forget, they should not forget the love of God for his people. Remember the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Remember the God who freed you up out of Egypt. And so today we remember that we were once sojourners. We were once foreigners. We were once slaves to sin. And what does God do? He does hesed for us by sending his son because we needed his help. We desperately needed his help. And if, if he doesn't help us, we're done for. And he's the only person uniquely suited to do this. No one else can do this. I can't do it. We can't do it for one another. There's no about a kumbaya that's going to free us from this. It's going to require God to do it, and he does so freely. Not because you obey his word, not because you believe in him, not because you're a good person, not because you have wealth, not because of anything that you've done. But it's strictly by God's grace that he saved you. Not by works, so that you don't boast. So that you don't go around thinking, I worked hard for my money, so should everybody else. Let them find their way out of it. I did this, they can do this. That's boasting, folks. And I would argue that it's, it's, a, it's, it's not understanding this ancient doctrine of saved by grace through faith, justified by grace. See, I think justified by grace has been lost in the church, especially the action of it, of what the implications are in our lives that we are called to go and, and, and do hesed with the world around us as God has done hesed to us. That's what he's calling us to do. That's why Timothy Keller says this. He says, justice is the sign that you've been justified by faith. He says, if you don't do justice, then you really don't get justified by faith. You really don't understand this doctrine because if you understood this doctrine, if you understood this truth that God has saved you, not because you're good, but because he is gracious and great and faithful, if you get that, then from your heart flows justice because you will understand just how much God has done for you. But see, we see all this, this in the New Testament. See, when we oppress the poor, it says we show contempt, not for them, but for our maker. What does it mean to show contempt, right? It's like God has given us all this grace and he's, he's done something that we can't do, and what do we do? We think of it this much, right? We, we don't even really consider that he did all that much for us when we oppress the poor because we don't get it. We don't get the depth, the, 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 the greatness of his grace. We, we can't fathom just how lost we were without him. But when we can fathom just how lost we were, there's, there's no way that we would oppress the poor. 
So when we give freely, we honor God. We, we give him the honor due because of what he's done for us. And we see that also in the New Testament, Jesus' brother James, in, in the book with his name on it in the New Testament, says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. To say that you'll pray for someone and then not help them is a sign that there's, maybe there's not faith there. Maybe that faith is dead. Or maybe it's just sleeping. But there's no understanding of what God has done for you. Because he's not saying that you do these things to to have God's grace. No, every other world religion says, act this way, do good, and God will bless you. But Christianity says God has blessed you Therefore, go and live accordingly. The motivation comes from the blessing that God has freely given us, justification by faith. And when we grasp that, the outflow is justice. Because that's what justification by faith produces in our hearts. That's the motivation. God actually produces it in us. It's not something we actually produce in ourselves. It's actually something he does in our hearts. And changes us not from the outside, but from the inside out. And so the justice we do in the world is godlike, because he's the source behind it. And it's strange, especially in a world that finds little value in, in giving more away than you would expect in return. But that's exactly what it is to disadvantage yourself to advantage others. That's exactly what justice God requires of us in the world. And he not only requires it, gives us the power and the motivation to actually live it out. But in order to to, to understand that, we've got to lock it away in our hearts. We can't keep making the same mistake and losing God's word and these doctrines in the Bible or in the church. We're the people that have been given the guardianship of this word. Not to just know it and study it, but to actually give it, to actually do it in the world, to bring hesed in the world around us. And it changes the world. That's God's plan is to use us to do that. I believe it is the answer to the injustice that we see around us. I want to conclude with you uh, this morning with a a rather long quote, so bear with me. Um, It's from Miroslav Volf, from that same book I showed you earlier. Uh, And and it's from an essay in the book titled Shopkeeper's Gold. And and this is what he says as he's answering this question and, and really debating about people thinking, or thinking that this, this doctrine is dead. We really don't see it in our culture, but he's saying, I don't believe it is dead. He says, could the hope for the inner cities lie in part in the retrieval of the doctrine of justification by grace? How could dead streets receive life from a dead doctrine? Imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the, the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty, violence. Your skin is the wrong, quote-unquote, wrong color, and you have no hope that any of this will ever change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens, and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievements. You are a failure, and you, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way for you to achieve tomorrow 
what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count, even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve, even that you are loved a tad bit more than those whose efforts have been crowned with success. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed but embodied in a community that has emerged not as a result of works, but justified by sheer grace. It seeks to justify by grace those who are made unjust by society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is the justification by grace proclaimed and practiced. As I was reflecting on the social significance of justification by grace, I remembered a passage from Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Oh, my brothers, I direct and consecrate you to a new nobility. You shall become begetters and cultivators and sowers of the future. Truly, not a nobility that you could buy like, some, like shopkeepers with shopkeepers' gold, for all that has a price is of little value. Justification by grace, I thought, musing on Nietzsche's profound observation, is so deeply at odds with our shopkeeper's culture. It takes the price tags off human beings, not so as to devalue them, but so as to give them, but so as to give them their proper dignity, a dignity not based on what they have achieved, but rooted in the sheer fact that they are loved unconditionally by God. Divine love is that indispensable nourishment for the human soul of which the prophet speaks when he calls, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine without money and without cost. Could it be that the help for the inner cities, for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed comes from and is motivated by the doctrine of justification by faith. I believe it is the motivation. You know what? We went to Texas, Daisy and I, and, and from then on, I didn't let her, I didn't open up the back of the Suburban without tying her collar around her and then fastening the leash to the headrest. I didn't, I didn't fall for that trick again. You know, God's word calls us to do the same thing so that we don't fall for the same deception again, so that we don't forget. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says that we are to write these things on our foreheads. We're to tie them around our wrist. We're to write them on our fence, on our doorposts. We are to teach them to our children and to our children's children so that they never forget. We as the church have been given the responsibility to guard this doctrine of justification by faith because it is that which has saved us. It is that which God has done for us. And now he calls us to go and do likewise. He calls us not to forget what he has done. And if we can learn to remember these things regularly, every day, we too can bring said into the world through his power and through his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you continue to disadvantage yourself for our sake. You continue to sacrifice your heart for us. 
You've taken away our sins. You've paid for them on the cross. You gave what was most valuable for us, for every single human being. Father, we thank you for your just your amazing grace. But we confess to you this morning that we often seek to advantage ourselves at the sake of others, and we find it difficult. Remind us this morning, remind us this morning that we are saved by grace through faith, that we have already been forgiven, that we are no longer poor and miserable. We are embodied by the very spirit of God, not to give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and one of strength. So Father, I pray this morning that that strength would rise up in your church, that this doctrine of justified by grace would empower us to go and do justice in this world. And when asked, why would you do this? Our response would be, because that is what God has done for me. How could I do anything less? I pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.